This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by our Asia-Pacific editor Damon Evans and our digital journalist Hamish Penman. Hello both, I hope you're both well. I, off mic, have certainly not forgotten that it was my wedding anniversary today. Twice. I've not forgotten it twice, that's for damn sure. How are you guys? All good. No, no wedding anniversary to forget. So, uh, oh right, okay. Makes life much easier. What year? Are you? This is your. This is year four. Year four uh, since we got married, which I can't. I can't quite fathom how that has happened, but it has. And as I said uh, earlier, in my defence, we said we're going to celebrate it on Saturday, not Thursday. So you know. A man's going to forget now and again, right? It's all right. We'll keep that pint we were going to go for on ice. So we can, that, that can sit in the tap till next time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I've, it's, just, it's, just, it's just the classic case of male incompetence, isn't it? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, just, I'm really letting the side down there. Anyway, um, so we've got a lot of uh, energy transition chat for you this week and, and maybe a sea monster right at the end. Um, but I think we'll kick off uh, with Hamish firstly. Uh, Hamish... The UK's first ever uh, carbon storage round. For somebody who, who, who perhaps doesn't know what the hell that means, why should we care? Oh, that's a good question. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's the first ever. It's, it's the a, first a landmark ever. of sorts. Yeah. It's a little, as soon as you put first ever in front of something, then you have an obligation to care, I feel. Mm. Um, and that's, that's my segment done. So let's move on. Oh, right. Yeah, that's um, nice. yeah, a short podcast. Yeah, no, another leasing round or licensing round yeah let it not be said that the industry doesn't know how to do one of those because we do have plenty of them. <laughs> and this is the latest one and the first of its kind so yeah being coordinated by the the north sea transition authority um not sure if it's the first globally david you might be able to shed some light on that in a, shortly but it's certainly the first um i certainly would be among the first globally i think but yeah 13 areas of of carbon storage up for grabs it's basically going to turn the north sea into as you very nicely put it before we uh, logged on a, a dump for, for everyone's <laughs> emissions. But so safely, of course, they'll be they'll be locked away. They won't be able to cause any or wreak any havoc. Um, so yeah, 13 are around, two off Aberdeen, a couple near Shetland in the northern North Sea too, um, but the majority are in the southern North Sea, um, which kind of makes sense, I suppose, given you've got Teesside and Humber there, both with the, the heaviest of heavy industry and pretty lofty decarbonisation ambitions. A lot of energy transition projects there that will be needing to, to bag their emissions. So that kind of works nicely, I suppose. Uh, so, yeah, the launch of this round is regarded as a pretty key moment on the road to that net zero holy grail. Really starts to add a bit of meat onto the, the carbon capture and storage bone after a, a lot of chat when I was starting to see where this carbon will actually be stored and, and the process and the route for doing so. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, six storage licenses have already been allocated um, most recently to BP and Equinor off the coast of Humber and um, actually. Um, so in total, all come kind of all in these areas are going to go a long way towards that, that target lock away between 20 to 30 million tonnes of CO2 by 2030, which given the sum total of zero tonnes of CO2 is currently being locked away is... Uh, quite a lot of lot of gap to fill there um but plenty more will be needed or of these carbon storages on top of that the nst nsta said as many as 100 could be required in order to hit zero out emissions completely by 2050 so this seems like it's going to kind of the first step on a very very long leasing path um 
regulator also says it comes following unprecedented levels of interest from a lot of companies eager to grab a part of the CCS market share and to secure um, secure these stores to, to lock away their emissions. So it's expecting strong competition. And uh, would-be bidders have told they will need to submit high-quality bids. So you know, mm. bad news for those that were hoping to submit crummy, half-baked... Unbaked cake. Yeah, they've got time now to to write that. So good to the NSTA to give them a bit of a bit of foresight. But yeah, the application window opened on Tuesday. I think, yeah, it was Tuesday. Uh, and it's now open, or open, open for 90 days from them, closing on September 13th. Uh, and then it will be evaluated by the NST on NSTA on technical and financial criteria and any new licenses to be awarded early next year. So, I mean, yeah, the, the kind of headline, I suppose, is that it is starting the ball rolling on the on the CCS ambitions that are, have been talked about so much, especially on here in um, in recent months. But yeah, I, mean, I don't know whether this is the first globally. Damon, are there any, because it seems to be quite a gathering pace in um, Australasia and, and Asia. I mean, have there been any similar processes there and how have they have they got on if there has been? Yeah, we, we had a, a what they called a greenhouse gas storage acreage release in Australia in the past year or so. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't really know much about it, but in answer to your question, so Australia has started, but I think it very recently, I think they've only had one, poss- possibly two in, in the past two years. And it's very small. I mean, I read about the the UK release. Uh, your article, I had a read of that, and that look it looks quite impressive to me. Certainly, it must be the. I would imagine you could say it's probably the biggest ever. Yeah, Nor- Norway's uh, certainly dished out a couple of licenses before. Um, I-, I think that's possibly akin to what you referred to there earlier, Hamish. There was, I think, six already in the UK, but these are all on a kind of individual basis. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, um, it- it's. I think when I spoke to some some people for our last supplement, which had CCS as one of the themes, um, I think I think the Global CCS Institute said something in 2017 that we need something like 2,000 large-scale facilities around the world in order to meet the Paris climate goals. Um, at the moment, we have something in the region of 27 fully operational, um, with another 135 in the pipeline. So, I mean, you're going to need, uh, as you kind of referenced there, multiple licensing rounds like this uh, around the world uh, many times over to achieve that kind of scale i think um and uh, and yeah i guess it's positive to see um it happening uh, after so much um back and forth of our regulatory uh, problems and and red tape and that and i dare say we've not heard the end of that either but um <laughs> but yeah that's that's happening and then we have people i mean there are people with um with serious problems around CCS, aren't there? I mean, uh, many of the the, the climate lobby uh, obviously link its, um, well, much of what CCS does is it abates uh, emissions derived from uh, taking natural gas to shore and processing that. So they they argue that, you know, it's enabling fossil fuels. Um, I, I, guess, I guess the view really has to be uh, that we need to pull all the levers that we can at the moment. I mean, there might be a point in the future, hopefully, when the world can afford to say we don't need these carbon capture and storage facilities anymore uh, because we're p- producing enough clean energy and uh, emissions are are right down but right now it kind of feels like we just have to pull every lever we can otherwise these climate targets aren't going to be met yeah there's so many so much of this industry in humberside t sides that it's currently as it stands 
near nigh on impossible to decarbonize completely. I mean, the kind of the production of concrete and stuff will require CCS in the future, and we're still going to need to build houses and roads in the future. So, I mean, it's a bit of a no-brainer, I think, although there are still issues around costs. I believe it is still quite an expensive thing to do. I think it is still so disliked because it has its roots in upping uh, yields from, from oil and gas fields as well, kind of pumping emissions back in to try and try and push more hydrocarbons out so i think because it has that kind of connotation to it a lot of people still see it as an oil and gas process which maybe it kind of is still but i think there's a lot more to it than that and yeah like you said it's going to be something that is going to have to happen i thought it was quite interesting as well the nsta saying that the the areas that have been chosen have been evaluated for their impact on offshore wind as well which is a kind of growing well say growing problem there's only really been one high profile issue so far with with bp and allstead um, with the endurance revenue uh, reservoir and um hornsey mm-hmm. but uh, given that the number of offshore wind farms that are going to be going up in the coming years mixed with the number of reservoirs you would think it's going to be a bit of an emerging problem so if they're trying to get a handle on this early that i think that's earlier the better i think yeah and how are they going to do it who's going to be the lead regulator or or, or cut through <laughs> all the the red tape uh there was somebody who talked about that this week not not written the story on it yet so well i talk about yeah fine it's not it's not going to break the, the front page or anything yeah fergus ewing um at this um event in aberdeen this week um he's a former scottish uh, energy minister uh, and th- there was like five energy ministers talking about various things they want of the, or former energy ministers, I should say, saying what they want from the UK and Scottish governments. Part of that was Fergus Ewing saying there's a hell of a lot of uh, different regulatory bodies in the UK right now, all kind of vying or getting involved in these decision making processes. And you also have, as you've kind of referenced there, offshore wind and carbon capture, they're all competing for space in the seabed. So you need to cut through that red tape a wee bit. And he was saying that the the North Sea Transition Authority, formerly the Oil and Gas Authority, should be like the the lead regulator and kind of take charge in that. And I I think that's kind of similar to what Tim Egger said at that conference you were at the other day, uh, Hamish. So I don't know. Yeah, but kind of along similar lines of saying that there's so many regulatory bodies that are kind of siloed into different industries that for somebody to get, for a developer to get a project off the ground, they've got to jump through so many red hoop, hoops made out of red tape that um that it well one it would perhaps put some would be developers off if if it just becomes too much of a hassle and, and two it creates a whole bunch of pitfalls in which projects could fail. So mm. he's kind of was saying there needs to be a perhaps an overarching body or at least for at least far closer work between regulatory bodies to make sure that these projects can can pass through. Uninhibited, well, not uninhibited. Obviously, checks and balances, but there's perhaps too many at the moment, or it makes it too much of a, a minefield. For minefield is the word he used for uh, for for companies. Mm. Okay, well, enough people start saying it's maybe it'll become true. Let's uh, <laughs> let's watch that space. Okay, uh, thanks, Hamish. Uh, and next up, we will uh, well, we'll stick with clean energy, but uh, Damon will take us through a a major uh, project that BP is getting involved in in Australia. Geothermal has been identified as a key technology in the provision of sustainable energy. It's not dependent on weather conditions and geothermal power plants can supply baseload electricity. And geothermal can also harness the skills and technology developed in the oil and gas sector to help drive the transition and shift to net zero. It offers a huge untapped energy source that has potential to drive up to 20% of the UK's electricity and all of the country's heating demand, making it an area that should not be ignored. 
For the first session of this new series to be held on the 29th of June, Energy Voice has teamed up with Xpro, an expert in geothermal, to showcase the potential of the technology to reshape the energy mix, enhance security of supply, and advance the just transition from oil and gas to sustainable energy. Register free at trackinggeothermal.com to join our virtual audience and hear from an expert panel as they discuss what the technology is, why it's important, and what's next for the sector. Okay, uh, Damon, big moves from uh, BP this week in the in the clean energy space. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's been a big week for green hydrogen announcements in Asia Pacific. Uh, in fact, we've had two global oil and gas super majors um, announce uh, give well give green hydrogen's prospects a vote of confidence uh, when Total Energies and BP both announced huge investment plans on successive days. Uh, when on Wednesday, BP announced it will take a 40.5% interest in the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, which is estimated to cost um, 36 billion in total to develop, 36 billion dollars. And um, the project aims to install 26 gigawatts of solar and wind capacity over 6,500 square kilometers um, in Western Australia's Pilbara Pilbara region. And and once fully developed, the hub is expected to produce about 1.6 million tonnes of green hydrogen or 9 million tonnes of green ammonia per year. And and these exports could start as early as 2027, and the project's partners have said previously. Um, and BP said the Western Australian project will serve as a long-term clean energy security contributor in Asia-Pacific, helping countries such as South Korea and Japan to, to decarbonise. Mm. It also reflects our belief that Australia has the potential to be a powerhouse in the global energy transition. Um, and, and following on to that, BP also said that the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, or this green hydrogen mega project, um, needed a lead partner with the super major scale and experience to take it forward, and uh, told the industry to stay tuned for further similar deals according mm. to reports following the announcement. So... A lot going on there. Major commitment. Uh, BP's clearly looking to the North Asian customers, Japan and South Korea, as they look to decarbonize. And, um, you know, I think significantly BP wouldn't have backed such a huge project without a lot of homework that showed it was viable. Um, how, However, Wood Mackenzie has previously stated that you know, hydrogen is a wonder fuel and can decarbonize all sectors of the economy. And But under their 1.5 degree scenario analysis, low carbon hydrogen demand hits over 600 million tons in 2050 from under 1 million tons today. So, you know, that, that we're talking about building a completely new industry. Mm-hmm. We're talking about doing that in, what, just under 30 years. Um, a lot of people draw parallels to the liquefied natural gas or LNG industry and how that was built up to, you know, which started probably in the early 70s and and ramped up, you know, probably didn't really get going until after the 2000s or or really expand in scale. Um, And and Wood Mackenzie estimates that $3.5 trillion is needed to build renewable electricity supply and electrolyzer capacity by 2050, with the the demand mainly driven by China, India, Japan, Korea, Europe, and the US. Interesting. Um, so yeah, so you know, big market. And, and then we also had Total Energies the day before announcing it's going to 
uh, take part in um, a huge, well, it's going to buy a 25% stake in India's Adani New Industries to take part in a 50 billion push to create what they say or what they're, they're claiming will be the world's largest green hydrogen ecosystem. And, and the first project as part of that is to produce green hydrogen uh, and related products. And that, that's going to cost around $5 billion wow. in total. So, um, yeah, big week, big announcements, green hydrogen. It's uh, Big money, big money. Yeah, oh, ro- rolling in the dollars. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's, I mean uh, it feels like, well, I mean, every time we put a story about up about hydrogen, there is somebody who has something to say. And I think having that critical mind of, towards it is is right uh, to an extent. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, it feels like six months ago, perhaps more recently even, there, there was this big question mark. I suppose there is to an extent a big question mark over hydrogen's market, but we do keep seeing these countries, um, you know, develop, developing and publishing hydrogen strategies. Um, here in Europe, obviously, Germany is probably the one to point to in terms of looking to get away from a uh, Russian supply of, of natural gas and looking for an alternative, and, and hydrogen certainly part of that puzzle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it sounds, I mean, is, I mean, Western Australia specifically, um, are they more looking towards, I presume, an export market rather than using hydrogen domestically? Uh, what kind of market might there be for it there uh, would be my question. There's a lot of industry in the Pilbara region. Um, hmm. Also, there's a lot of, it's a traditional heartland of oil and gas in Western Australia, a lot of LNG exports, oil exports, etc. But there's also a lot of iron ore development in the Pilbara. So I think some of the hydrogen will be used to help decarbonize the iron ore sector and, and any other heavy industry that is there. But I, I think you're right, the main... I and I think probably why BP is involved. They see the opportunity to export mm. this green hydrogen to to Asia. You know, perhaps perhaps in the twenty thirties, twenty forties. I mean, obviously the big vision is by in the twenty forties this will be a huge market and tradable commodity, and there'll be a lot of demand for it. Um, I think Wood McKenzie has said in a report previously that Australia is ahead of the pack for green hydrogen export potential. Um, I think due to its access to low cost renewables and uh, which gives it a competitive advantage. And um, they also said with conversion and transport costs making up as much as two thirds of the delivered cost of um, the expected interregional hydrogen seaborne trade, the proximity to market will also be important. So for supply to Northeast Asia, Supplies in Australia would uh, appear to have an advantage. Um, they also said Australia in particular stands out because of its track record of exporting you know, natural resources and minerals, it, its sheer physical scale of Australia and and the solar and wind resources, mm-hmm. as well as the potential for large-scale CCS. So, so yeah, and, and clearly with BP making such a big commitment, there's they obviously see the opportunity. I mean, Bernard Looney, the CEO was on LinkedIn yesterday, you know, using this as an example of what an integrated energy company looks like. And, um, you know, they made some good points, but I think, you know, they, they must expect yeah, it's got to be commercial eventually. Otherwise, it's going to look very silly. Yeah. We, we had uh, Surian Wood is, is well, well, David, I'm assuming uh, knowledge of that. But obviously, if you're in Indonesia, you may, may well not know who Surian Wood is. Uh, it's kind of oil tycoon. No idea. And, yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, 
oil tycoon. Well, we live in a bubble here in Aberdeen sometimes, right? That's what that's what people can say. Uh, he's kind of this uh, oil tycoon turned uh, philanthropist, and he chairs an economic development body called Opportunity Northeast, and he's behind uh, various initiatives like the Energy Transition Zone here in Aberdeen. Talking at a conference uh, this week, and he, he well, talked about a number of things, but one of the points I think he made in passing, uh, there, there was a, a brief mention of hydrogen and uh, kind of noticing, noting the number of jobs and, and economic figures that they just keep go, going up and up and up and up. And I think he said, I do hope they're getting it right, um, which I think is uh, interesting and, and probably worth honing in on because um, we do keep getting these massive ambitions around hydrogen. And um, I mean, even the, the new head of of Hydrogen at BP, I think Reuters revealed that this week. Um, even he acknowledged that the the hydrogen market doesn't exist in reality today, as you're kind of saying, Damon. That we're, we're looking decades ahead, really here. Um, but yeah, I mean, at some point or the other, it has to become commercial. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to see these plans converted into into action, right? Um, so yeah, I guess I guess it is fair to to put perhaps a question mark over certain things in terms of the the size of the market and the the, the number of jobs, but certainly it, it seems, based on what we've seen this week, that uh, BP and indeed uh, Total Energies are are convinced anyway. Um, so, so yeah, I think I've, I've talked our, our way around to the end of that one. So thank you very much, Damon. Um, next up, I'll round us off with talk of some sea monsters. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, uh, now for something completely different. Uh, the Sea Monster Project. That's a development planned for uh, Western Supermare in Somerset, which is taking a former North Sea gas rig and they're converting it into an art installation. And that was highlighted um, by Sam Long. He heads up Decom North Sea, the trade body, uh, last month. And he asked a number of questions, mainly, um, why isn't the oil and gas industry doing more of this? This was kind of set up by an art group. Um, and why isn't it happening in Aberdeen and Newcastle and Norwich? I've never been to Western Supermere, but... Uh, as Sam Long put it, this is not a region that really has ties to oil and gas, and it's nothing, nothing really to do with oil and gas. And it's the same spot that Banksy did his like. It was like this um, Disneyland in 2015. I think I remember seeing pictures of it. It's like a nightmare version of Disneyland. Disneyland might be a nightmare in itself for some people as well. <laughs> but this was a nightmarish version of Disneyland. Um, and yeah, the, the the Sea Monster project. It's designed to highlight. A few things, the, the legacy of, all, of our offshore structures, um, to underline inequality, uh, as the project organizers put it, in the, you know, kind of the downturn uh, of, of our coastal communities here in the UK. Apparently, the UK is one of the few regions in the world where property prices get lower as you get closer to the coast. Um, I think people, uh, well, I don't know if people in Aberdeen that will resonate with or not. <laughs> uh, depends which uh, postcode you're in, perhaps. Um, but yes, a former gas platform now an art installation, 
I've seen the 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 graphics kind of pictures. I'm sure you guys have looked at it too. It looks impressive. Um, though I do have some queries on the practicalities. Before we do that, I thought it looks cool. What do you guys think of it looking at those pictures? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I had to look through it. I thought it looked really good. There was a nice waterfall coming off it. That was that was what caught my eye. Ooh. Um it doesn't they've done quite a lot to it. It doesn't really look like a gas pl- or an oil and gas platform anymore. They've they've rejigged it quite a lot if this is indeed the final design, but oh, it looked good. The the weather looked far too nice for the UK, so they've clearly taken a bit of artistic license there. But maybe it'd be better in Indonesia, Damon. Better, better weather there. <laughs> It'd be perfect. Might might be a bit too hot to go and go on it in daytime. We might have to go at nighttime. But are you guys in the dry? Is it the dry season just now? It's just it's, is, is that right? Yeah, it must be. It must be beautiful. I'm so I'm so jealous. Aberdeen's nice just now, but it's not. It's not Indonesia. Well, I've heard it's 28 degrees in the UK at the moment. Yeah, it's absolutely balmy today. Pretty good actually. It's pretty good here. Um, which which is rare, but we can't we can't say it too loudly because the weather will change in a in a on a dime if we do that. So let's just move on. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk about the practicalities. I mean, so much of this is shrouded in a non-disclosure agreement. Um, so, but we do know that the the scheme is partly funded through the UK government's 120 million pound unboxed program. It's kind of designed to give greater connectivity between the arts and industry. Um, this had been due to open in July, um, but a, a local newspaper has said that there has been some delays. Right now, kind of the legs of the rig are visible on the the Lido in Western Supermare, but the, the platform is not. Uh, the organisers still say it will open in the summer. Um, and one of the statements says it will kind of, it'll be open for two months and attract 200,000 visitors. So does that mean it's, this is a, a temporary thing? What happens when it's done? Where is it going? Um, how, how is that cost effective? <laughs> um, it's also, you know, it's also thought this hasn't been taken on a barge right to Western Supermare, but perhaps, you know, brought somewhere else and then cut up and transported by road reassembled elsewhere um and sorry taken by road and then reassembled at at the site or that's the plan anyway so yeah i mean i don't know if the visiting fee to visit this is there a visiting fee i don't know um perhaps that will pay the cost but obviously we have some decommissioning um targets here in the uk this doesn't i'm not sure i i don't know uh, so much of it's shrouded in secrecy uh, but it sounds like if there's some government money behind it it might be open to a freedom of information request so we might follow that up <laughs> but yeah i mean even more shrouded is we don't know the name of the platform um Sam Long from Decom North Sea said it is a small gas platform. I think that's probably fair. It's not an Indian Northern or anything like that. Uh, he knows what it is, but he's not saying. Um, and then, yeah, that takes us to why not uh, Aberdeen? You know, um, I, in principle, I like the idea of this sort of thing being in Aberdeen. Uh, I feel like we've had this conversation many times before. This type of story tends to roll in every six months or so, it feels like. Certainly there was a suggestion for uh, Rubus Law Quarries redevelopment here in, in the city of putting an, an oil rig in the middle of that as part of a you know big heritage museum, if you like. Uh, we've had, we've, what have we had? We've had an oil rig theme park mooted in the 1970s. It never happened. Um, and we've had various people uh, in, in the past two years say, why don't we have an oil rig museum in Aberdeen? Um, and of course, what we always tend to forget here is that there are some very good ex- exhibitions at Aberdeen's Maritime Museum. And I know if you're back in this uh, museum idea, you probably haven't gone to the Maritime Museum recently, have you? Be honest. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it often gets overlooked. But, you know, it's not a big flashy oil rig. I think there is questions about how do you do that realistically. And... It has been done elsewhere, um, 
But yeah, at Galveston, Texas, there is a there is a a jack up, an old jack up rig, I think, that's been converted into a small uh, museum, um, and I think that that looks achievable and it's kind of modest. There's also an uh, an oil rig museum in Stavanger, um, but it's kind of like got a part of a rig, but it's not actually like. It's not like the full thing is a museum, if you get me. So I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Hamish? Think we could get one in the new South Harbour? I don't know. It feels like it would take a lot of space. Definitely. I'd love to do it. I think it would be brilliant. It seems really odd that the city hasn't... I mean, there is obviously the, the exhibitions at the Maritime Museum, but it seems to me really odd that the city hasn't marked its oil and gas heritage in more of a substantial way, given the the rather large part it's played in, um, in, in Aberdeen. So I don't know the financials behind it, but it would also seem like a pretty good way of Putting uh, seeing the the big focus on reusing and recyclability of of oil rigs, it seems like a pretty good way to reuse one. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think be, I'd love to do it. I, I, I think a lot of people would because for so many people, they hear a lot about what it's like on platforms, what it's like offshore. But thousands in Aberdeen have never been offshore; they just hear kind of anecdotally. So I think there'd be a lot of people that would would be keen to go off and see what the the digs are like and what it's like to, to stroll around a platform. I'd certainly do it. Mm. So yeah, if that's what if, that, if that's what if that's going to swing it, then there's my there's my two pence. I've got your endorsement. Have you been offshore as well? Have you been offshore uh, before, Damon? No, I haven't. I've um, only read about it. There's a there's a great book. I don't know if you've heard of it called um, "Don't Tell My Mum," but uh, she thinks I'm uh, something like a piano player in a whorehouse. Yeah, that's right. Really <laughs> Have you read? Yeah, I mean that's a great book. Kind yeah, of. yeah, I'm actually an oil rigger. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I will brag. I've been off. Oh, I've been offshore a couple of times, uh, and it is really cool. It's really interesting to get out and see what it's actually like. Um, and and yeah, maybe there's an element of of bringing that to the world um, or to the people that are curious about it. Um, but yeah, I I mean I think ultimately there's a question over cost. Um, there's a question over practicality. It's a question of a space, perhaps, as well, given that the ambitions that Aberdeen has to, uh, you know, use all of our our space around our ports for um, commercial reasons or um, indeed building up our offshore wind industry. Um, but that said, yeah, it, it does seem that the Maritime Museum is a small, small token to not just oil and gas, but to, to fishing uh, here in the city. Um, and other elements uh, surrounding that. Um, and could we have something more visible, something more symbolic? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, maybe some might argue we don't need it. Um, but uh, yeah, until until we can figure out somebody who's actually got the the the, the drive to make it happen, I don't think it's it's going to happen. Uh, sadly, but and the uh, cash. Indeed, indeed. Perhaps we can just round them all up. Um, but uh, <laughs> un, 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 I, don't, I don't think that's too likely. Anyway, we'll, we'll leave the dreams of the Oil Rig Museum of Aberdeen uh, there for now. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Damon and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.